Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. So in today's episode, we're exploring the frontiers of speech and debate but in the virtual world. As many of you know, COVID pushed some schools to participate in speech and debate via video conferencing using Zoom, Google Meet. And even though COVID slowed down a bit, some speech and debate tournaments around the world continue to offer video conferencing options. So this is cost-effective for schools, but there's this lack of presence and embodiment that makes the engagement of physical face-to-face -face speech and debate so much better. So we've invited a few experts. Stefan Bouchard, who's founder of Bait USA, he's co-executive director of the New York City Urban League debate, and he's a longtime debate coach. And we also have Joe Rankin, head of speech and debate coach at Bettendorf High School in Bettendorf, Iowa. Sorry, Indiana? What's IA? Iowa. Thank you. And he's also been coaching for 17 years. Amazing. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Thank you, Craig. Uh, to the be. Awesome to have you. The elephant in the room is, let's start with maybe people don't know what speech and debate is. So maybe help our audience by starting there and telling us a bit about uh, what is speech and debate and how we'll get into the weeds on how it might work in XR, but you know, let's just sort of tell the audience what speech and debate really is. Yeah, well, speech and debate is, you know, it's like an extracurricular activity that students in, you know, grades K to 12, mostly in middle school and high school, uh, engage in uh, to improve their academic skills. And there are different like reasons they participate, you know, the motivational factors, you know, some of them, they want to have a, an after school activity that, you know, universities care a lot about when they're applying. You know, sometimes they want to, you know, they recognize the value of the skills and they want to develop those skills, uh, you know, before they become adults. But also, you know, there's just the old fashioned motivations. You know, they're motivated by winning uh, and making friends, friends, you know, through the social experiences they have. And where they win and lose uh, and where they make these friends is at speech and debate tournaments, which really organize competitions where the students from different schools or after school academies, they compete against each other to win awards based on their win-loss record if they're engaging in a debate event or their relative ranking if they're engaging in a speech competition. And, you know, those those uh, debates and speeches are, are judged by other adults. Now, yeah. when the student, yeah, when the students register for the tournament, they, they can choose some different events, debate events or individual speaking events. Yeah, the, the way I usually explain it to parents and whatnot is, I just tell them it's kind of like competitive academics. So we already have competitive sports. We get that idea. You know, oh, I want to go out for basketball. I want to go out for baseball. Uh, the same is true for different programs. Some programs even do have a, you have to like, I guess, try out to be on the team. They have some really big programs out there. Others are just, you know, you come in and do your thing. Uh, in terms of, I usually call it like track and field. Uh, there's a whole lot of different events. You know, you may be running the 100 meter dash, maybe running the two mile race. They're still running, but they're in different types. Uh, the same is true in speech. The same is true in debate. We have some different competitive activities, and usually there's a flavor for just about everyone uh, if they give it some thought and consideration, and we just try to get them out there and doing something that they enjoy. Mm. Uh, now, Joe and Stefan, let's use that track and field analogy. During COVID, the, the field changed. That is to say where we, you know, I use air quotes, where we did our debate and speech move from the physical building to the online. And, you know, this is going to help us set the stage to understand maybe why we start to think about virtual worlds. But tell us, what were the pros and cons to moving debate during COVID to this online platform, which was either Zoom or Google Meet? So, you know, what happened, of course, you know, the pandemic and all of a sudden all the schools shut down. You know, and at these tournaments we were describing, you, you have a lot of kids competing, you know, five, 
anywhere from 500 kids to, you know, 5,000 kids, a lot of times coming from all over. So, you know, travel really became impossible. And of course, organizing that type of gathering became impossible. So, you know, like schools had started classes online, tried to figure out how to start speech and debate online. And that kind of shocking transition like happened, uh, you know, pretty quickly. Like we, we developed one of the the first system was uh, a, a former student and I developed a, a a system where we had uh, debate tournaments, which, you know, in that instance, used over a hundred different online competition rooms uh, up and running at the beginning of April. We hosted that tournament with Georgetown. I had students participating in it. We had over 500 students participating in that. And then on this platform, we developed our two national championships at the end of the year, uh, one with 1,500 students and one with 5,000 students. One happened at the end of April, the other one uh, in the middle of June, the one with 5,000 students. All these students were up there and they, they were competing. Just all the kids who would have traveled to go all of these tournaments had a place to compete. What we saw over the course of the pandemic, you know, in the 20 and 2021, that academic year, there were a lot of students participating in speech and debate, and they were participating very regularly because they didn't really have most of the other activities hadn't moved online or were, for, you know, very, um, you know, quasi inactive happening very frequently. You had a lot of students participating. As we moved into 21, 22, other activities were able to go back online faster because they weren't really centered around such large competitions with some such large gatherings. You know, you might have had a mock trial between two schools or a model UN uh, competition between a few schools. And given the numbers, those were able to move back online, um, back live faster. Speech and debate, on the other hand, because of the size of the competitions, it was too hard to move them uh, back online or back live as, as quickly. And as a result, like, you know, the participation, well, the number of tournaments stayed the same just didn't really have as many students because students were looking for that live, uh, you know, experience, which, which is you, you know, you described as kind of like they didn't really have that, that presence embodiment. So while they were happy to do it, especially at the start of the pandemic, it wasn't that way to kind of make brands, to socialize, to be fully immersed. Uh, yeah, and to look at it from a different perspective, uh, Stefan was describing some very large tournaments. Uh, they were also on a more local scale in Iowa, um, you got to the point where some schools who would be willing to travel and maybe do a small in-person tournament, but if there weren't enough people there, it's kind of like a track meet. If you only have two schools, it's not really a track meet at that point. It's just two schools meeting together. You can do that for a basketball game. It's not quite as easy to do for a speech and debate tournament. And so a lot of things did move online, as Stefan described, and uh, they use a platform called tabroom.com, which was already doing a whole lot of the back-end stuff that we, as Stefan and I, run a lot of tournaments across you know, the state or the country or whatever. Um, we've been using that platform for that need for quite some time, but they quickly added on a video conferencing room option, which allowed the competitions to continue. And of course, it was good that we could continue uh, because some things couldn't. Uh, I, I had plenty of band students who they were playing band instruments in a room and like sending the audio over the Internet. It, it just isn't the same thing. And even as I say it out loud, right, like you're laughing, right? Um, speech and debate could do something like that, though. We could compete online and we could make it work now was it the same of course not right like if you stare at a webcam i mean anybody who survived in this uh covid time frames knows that having a video conference is not the same as sitting down and talking with someone one-on-one -on -one. uh that was the same kind of thing that was happening in the speech and debate competition uh there's an event called humorous interpretation where the intent is to make someone laugh and like connect with them and like play off their facial expressions and those kind of things it doesn't work when you're talking to a webcam. You don't have that emotional connection. And so what we are hoping for is that with virtual reality, uh, that we can have that immersion factor and kind of have that connectivity a little bit more. It's not still going to be the same as an in-person. I think we all agree that is the preference, but it's going to be one more option on the table. And we think it's a viable option to explore. Yeah, and let's talk about that because, again, for many people, this is going to be new to them vr will still be new and just like all of us when we first try vr we have certain impressions and opinions so both you two gentlemen which is why i wanted to talk to you today have dabbled a little bit in vr and i just want to get your thoughts on what was that like you know let's start with you stefan what was it like putting a headset on how did you feel in vr those sorts of things yeah you know i didn't uh put my first headset on until uh... Uh, the beginning of September, 
Uh, you know, we're recording this obviously at the end of December, so I, I guess I've come fully, we're largely immersed in the last three months. But you know, when I first put it on, it, I felt a little disoriented. I wasn't sure how to utilize the controls. Uh, but in the very limited experience I had, I just kind of instantly realized, wow, this has an enormous potential. Uh, not only is maybe like a competition venue, an incredible competition venue, but as a way to help students learn speech and debate. Uh, so that that kind of struck me. And the other thing that kind of struck me, especially as I learned more about it, is you know, I read some like editorials about the metaverse and VR, and it's really you know presented these, these editorials. You know, they're like pro and con, extreme things. Like you know, the metaverse is some utopian society where we're all you know we're all going to live in virtual reality or, or some dystopian nightmare where we're all going to live. But it's really not like that. There there are different parts of the you know metaverse which contain elements of virtual reality that present a lot of different opportunities. Right for speech and debate, for education in general, for all different kinds of industries, um, and I think that's really the biggest, uh, the you know, the one of the biggest things I've learned is that there's just a lot of there are a lot of things going on in virtual reality and in the metaverse which can really benefit students, coaches of speech and debate and speech and debate generally. Well said. Uh, and then for me, um, I consider myself a bit of a tech nerd. You know, growing up, you know, building my own PCs from you know fourth, fifth grade or whatever kind of thing. Always had that kind of interest. Um, but my own experience with VR is limited a little bit more than, uh, Stefan there, but I, I have a quest too. I've done my fair share of Beat Saber, which I think is the number one thing most people know about VR is Beat Saber, uh, Vita Immortal, a few other games of that nature. Um, I've also, uh, had time to go onto the Engage platform, which is one of the things in VR there that has a lot of the metaversities and different things. Um, and I just had the pleasure of, uh, getting to know, uh, Steve Grubbs over the years. I've known him prior to his work with Victory XR, uh, but he has definitely been a person to talk to about virtual reality. Uh, his son there for a while ran a place called Paradigm in downtown Davenport, which was a VR kind of arcade kind of thing. And uh, I took my children down there a few times. We did a few speech and debate team like, you know, fun activities to go down there a couple of times. And so, yeah, I've seen the technology for, you know, a year or two at the very least. Uh, I just love the possibilities. And there are quite a few out there. And it's just one more avenue to explore. Yeah, I love the word possibilities. You know, my origin story, which I, I often tell on this podcast, is my son and I were at a mall just outside of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and it was the new HTC Vive at the time. This is 2016, and he put the headset on, and he was so enamored and blown away, and he's not a big gamer. And so he convinced me, he's like, Dad, Dad, you got to try this. And when I put it on, the for me, the realism what I saw inside made me just sort of think the potential here for kids and being able to take them anywhere. You know, you talk about the analogy of the track and field event. Well, you know, you literally could convince your brain that you're doing track and field inside a VR uh, environment. And so, you know, let, let's transition to that because in the next few months, you guys are planning to host a speech and or debate tournament inside a virtual world. So give us a few details on what that's all about and some of the planning that you have to do to consider this new medium. Yeah, so we're planning on hosting the the first tournament at the beginning of March on March 5th, um, kind of as an extension to another toast, the tournament I'm hosting. And we believe it's the first uh, experimental VR tournament with teams from across the United States. Uh, and even into Canada. And I, I really like to think of this tournament as kind of the beta test. Uh, the same way, you know, when we ran the Georgetown tournament in early April, you know, we told everyone, hey, this is, you know, the first tournament online with a significant number of students. We're all here to learn and, of course, compete and do the best we can. And we learned about the technology and some of the strengths and weaknesses and some of the things that we had to change. So we really look at this as the first tournament for everyone, the students and the coaches and, of course, many of the judges. Uh, and then, you know, and uh, we, are, we already have seven schools signed up to uh, to compete in the tournament. And then uh, later on, we're going to we're going to break down and uh, we're going to have some additional tournaments uh, that I know Joe would like to talk about and, and some of the events that we're planning. Uh, yeah, as, as Stefan said, our, our current thinking is Sunday, March 5th is our first tournament. We're going to offer two events. And just as a little bit of a breakdown on those, uh, we're going to do an event for speech called Informative Speaking. And it's going to be a National Speech and Debate Association event, which is this bigger na national-wide organization that runs things. They actually have a bunch of worldwide stuff, too. 
But either way, that's the starting point. So it's like an eight to 10 minute performance where you just inform the audience of something you're interested in. So it could be anything from, hey, I really like this fascinating thing of history, or it could just be like you like Cheetos and you want to tell us about Cheetos, go for it, right? Uh, but it's their their topic. Um, it usually is pretty in-depth, but it's eight to 10 minutes. Um, we're trying to utilize uh, the uh, virtual reality in terms of incorporating the IFX database into their performance, which would allow 3D models. And so the, the biggest uh, thing that we're trying to incorporate, which is the hardest part of all of this, is to take something that we currently know that exists, informative speaking, and it add on, make it unique, an additive element that makes VR essential or at least something different from the norm. And the ability to use 3D models as evidence or to use 3D models and, you know, just as displays, there's going to be something different. So that way it's more than just, oh, look, now I'm in the virtual space saying the same words I would in a physical space or a video conference call. It's doing something a little bit different. Uh, the other event we're going to be offering at Lakeland Tournament is the public forum debate which is a two-person team versus another two-person team event uh, on a topic of current events. And I believe the one we're going to go with is on high-speed rail. You know, should we be using high-speed rail in America? Should we invest in it or should we not? The wording is unimportant, but that's the general topic. Uh, we're still working out of the modifications on this particular event uh, because it is a little bit harder uh, to conceptualize some of those distinctions to make it an additive to the VR experience. Uh, but that's what we're working on, and that's why it is a beta test. Because as we all know, anytime we use new technology, it's going to be a little bit of a learning curve, and stuff happens. Uh, stuff happens so much. I, I remember the first video conference tournament we did in Iowa. Um, it was my tournament, and oh boy, it is hard to believe, uh, but some schools had some firewall issues uh, connecting to a service that they don't normally allow because it was video conferencing. They didn't want students on there. Uh, so I'm sure we're going to have all kinds of fun just trying to figure it out, but that's why we our beta testing. Uh, then we're going to have two other tournaments. The next one is going to be Saturday, May 20th. This is going to be a bigger tournament, we're hoping, assuming everything goes well in the beta test. Uh, and we're hoping to add on uh, Student Congress, which is much like our real Congress, although we're hoping, you know, with less scandal, I don't know <laughs> what you want to do with that one. Uh, but we're going to have students um, acting as if they are Congress people, and they're going to debate bills and whether they should pass something into law or not. And that's the gist of the event. They have a piece of paper, or in this case, you know, a VR piece of paper or something. And they're going to debate a certain bill that will become law if it's passed or not if it's failed. And they're going to debate that back and forth. And it's a really intriguing event. I think VR offers a number of interesting possibilities on this event because you can actually have them, instead of competing in a classroom, you can have them compete in the U.S. Capitol building. You can have them compete in the Senate. Uh, so I think that that environmental factor has some interesting implications uh, and just a little bit more realism, so to speak. Uh, the other event we're looking into adding is extemporaneous speaking, uh, which is just a current event focus, like trying to talk about something happening in the real world right now. And so, you know, you just take any headline, really, if you think about it. Uh, for instance, the easy one right now, because it's been going on for sadly almost a year now, but you could ask them a question about, you know, what should the U.S. strategy be in the Ukraine or, you know, helping out in that re regard or, you know, it could be a lot more specific than that, too, uh, usually is. But either way, it's a current event question. They get 30 minutes to think, to prepare, and then they present uh, the speech. And that's how it goes in the regular in-person world tournament. Again, we're trying to think of the add-on that VR would offer. Again, trying to think of these IFX kind of effects or those kind of things or the environmental factors. Imagine asking a question about the rainforest, for instance, and then having them give the speech in the rainforest or to have models from the rainforest area. There's a lot of things that could be incorporated there. Uh, and then finally, our final tournament that we're going to be offering is Friday, May 26th, which is going to be uh, Stefan driven here. He has a lot of connections to the world, uh, but he's trying to think of this as an international tournament, which we're going to do a more of a model UN model, which is similar to student Congress where people come together, but they'd be like from representatives from different countries and uh, addressing issues on a global scale. I want to circle back for a sec, Joe, to the, uh, the speech part, the informative speaking. So if they were doing informative speaking in a physical face-to-face -face setting or even on Zoom, would they be allowed to present to be more convincing a model of something? It was, is that allowed or... Yeah, um, informative speaking is the one NSDA event, and I know there's a lot of different events out there. Uh, different states have different programs, but I always try to just go with the one that I think has the most widespread appeal. 
Uh, but the National Speech and Debate Association, they have some rules and guidelines. And for informative speaking, you are allowed props. Uh, okay. The only guideline is it has to be something you can easily set up and easily take down. Uh, and it can't rely on electricity or provided, you know, you can't assume that you walk into a room and have a projector available. You can't mm -hmm. assume you walk into a room and have, you know, whatever kind of technology available or outlets even. And so in the in-person world, those kind of things usually come down to like an easel and, you know, a board and some kind of like magnetic take things down effect or um, Velcro, you know, just those, those kind of presentations, which is fine and it actually works great. Uh, but when we're going into VR, we have more opportunity, more ability to do some outside of the box things. And that's that's the hardest part of all of this is not just getting trapped into what we know, but trying to incorporate what we can do and modify it in a way that doesn't just put us back right in the same classroom. I think I heard from a previous episode, uh, you interviewed someone and they said, yeah, that was the biggest thing that they had a problem with VR. They said that when they first started out, the person, they just made a classroom in virtual reality and when they could have done so much more. Yeah. And this is a great transition. Like, of course, it sounds like, you know, we could, through the help of VR and its ability to spawn these 3D objects quite easily, improve informative speaking. Are there other particular styles of either speech or debate that you think VR is more suited for them to do? Um, for me, I, I think informative is the best starting point, especially as we're all still in this learning as we go kind of model. Um, and I think that's a lot of things in life, like you learn through doing. <laughs> um, and one of the things that we are learning through doing here is trying to figure out, for instance, the last few days of my life have been getting into the Engage platform, the, the platform we are most likely using for this event, and trying to figure out how to utilize the IFX library, the interactive uh, content that they have available, and then how to move those things and how to like utilize it in front of a space in the best way possible. And really, if you think about it, this is the same kind of skill we do in the daily life that we already have. Like when I speak in front of my classroom every day, what, what do I have to do? First, I have to set up my board. Second, I have to make sure I have my notes ready. Third, I have to like figure out where to stand and speak, especially in a space I've never been in. So like the, these things are going to be incorporated in either world. It's just going to be implemented a little bit differently. Uh, but informative speaking is the first one. I think Student Congress is going to be something that I really feel could work really well. Uh, one thing for Student Congress in, in the in-person event, it's usually 12 to 25 people in a room, typically a large classroom. Well, now we can transport those people, not just to say, hey, kids, pretend that you're Congress people who are you know, doing your job. Now we can actually put them in the Congress. Now we can actually put them in a space where instead of like having to listen for a gavel tapping on a table in order to know what the time signals are now they can have a big clock up on the wall because you can make the wall whatever the heck you want um and there's a lot of like little modifications i think that we can do to make things better um but we're still just exploring and that that's that's the fun of this uh it's also the hard part too to make sure it's a value add because we don't want to just none of this is about replacing in-person tournaments none of this is about replacing a video conference call but it is about giving a different stance and a different opportunity that's a Stefan, I'm going to get you to weigh in in a bit, but I want to expand on what Joe just said. You know, the, this this is so true. People get scared, I think, of technology like VR because they're worried that it is going to take away the teacher or, you know, same with AI, that people are so worried about AI taking away something. And I don't think, like Joe just said, it's about that. It's about, you know, adding on and considering where it might fit in to the bigger picture of things. But Stefan, I want you to weigh in for a minute how you see VR as maybe helping some of the genres of speech and debate. Well, first of all, you know, I agree with Joe that those those are some of the, the biggest genres where, you know, it can kind of have the most immediate and direct impact. And I think whenever you create something new, you always want to build a bridge to what exists, right? So if we ask people to participate in a VR tournament and we created our own events from scratch, and we just ask them to come, the kids who already are participating in these other events, they wouldn't want to join because they would think, well, I have to learn a whole new event. I have to learn VR. The coaches would feel the same way. So there's no connection. So we're build, you know, we're we're using these events both because they're valuable, but also to create a connection to the existing community, right? And as Joe discussed, with some initial uh, you know, modifications and as we run these tournaments, probably some additional modifications. But I'd also like to add that, you know, 
the virtual world is, is going to expand, you know, uh, regardless of whether we have it in speech and debate or education. You know, I've seen estimates that by 2030, there'll be 500 million headsets, whether the current headsets or their glasses or some, you know, mutation or, or morphing of what we had. There's going to, students, teachers, everybody's going to start living in virtual world. And we need to learn how to communicate in virtual worlds. One of the things that speech and debate competitions through this repetition, right, of the events is it it helps you develop public speaking skills. It helps you develop argument skills. It helps you develop socialization skills in these environments. Well, a virtual environment is not exactly the same as a physical environment, right? So we can start eventually designing events once we figure out, okay, these are the best communication skills to have in a virtual world. We can incorporate that into a competition and, and we can have that. And one thing I, I just keep thinking about is avatars, you know, I learned in a class like how to create an avatar, and they just say, "Well, you know, here's some things you can make an avatar." Well, how how you decide to dress your avatar, how you know your, the you know the the pigmentation of the skin of your avatar, your hair, everything you do, your gender, right? Like these all all present uh, ideas, right? You're bringing this to the table just as if every day how you may choose to to dress as a teacher in front of your classroom, as, as Joe just noted, as you may encourage your students to address for a tournament, these all impact how people perceive you, how persuasive you are, what's socially appropriate, right? And people are just throwing avatars together almost as an afterthought or kind of have a fun way to present ourselves. But I think you could really eventually have a whole event around how to, you know, design an avatar and how you interact and communicate with your avatar. And you could have a score for that the same way that you're kind of being uh, scored on how you're presenting yourself in a especially a particular public speaking event. So I think there's a lot of potential here uh, for developing events that are almost unique to the virtual world once the virtual world grows. Yeah, I had a previous episode where I talked to a gentleman about identity and avatars. And so this is a really good point to make. And that is, you know, what kind of rules would we end up having for students who participate in these speech or debate tournaments? You know, are they allowed to be creative about how they look or do they need to don the skin of or the avatar of their original self so these are some great questions that obviously need to be worked out eventually but let's let's jump back a bit because all three of us have been in education for a while and we already know that you know new technology isn't necessarily adopted quickly in education it's quite an arduous slow process so you guys being sort of the front runners on this obviously have thought about, okay, how do I convince coaches, you know, parents that this is a new tweak, uh, maybe a new add-on to help us enhance how we do speech and debate? How do you convince people to do it this way uh, and get people participating? You know, I think within that, there's a lot of, you know, like you mentioned, some different essential constituencies, right? Coaches and then the students and the parents. And I, I think you could, you kind of break those down even to a lot of other categories. But I, I'd probably just offer like a few, a few broad thoughts. The one I think with coaches and a lot, of, a lot of coaches are teachers. They're not all, but a lot of coaches are teachers. And I think you're communicating to them that, you know, the technology really is coming into this space. Uh, someone who is a guest lecturer in, in my class, Vic Parth, who, uh, you know, led the design of Elon Musk's first Hyperloop vehicle, said he thinks in the near future that every class in schools will have some kind of a VR or AR part, uh, component. We've already seen, you know, with Victory XR developing, uh, you know, partnerships with universities, over 100 uh, universities either existing or, or coming online that are men of universities that have, have a VR component, that this is going to be everywhere. And this really gives those uh, coaches who are teachers kind of an opportunity to get ahead of the curve. I think the second thing is that, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that the, the students really in, in any subject, whether it's speech and debate or some other subject, learning content in a virtual world, their content retention is a lot higher because they're actually experiencing what they learn. What they learn. And this just goes back to any type of learning where students are actually engaged in a project. That's what they tend to remember. You know, a lot of people say that. What do you remember from high school? What you remember is not what the teacher wrote on the board, but the projects that you actually did. And then I think the third, you know, the third thing is, look, we're going to have some tournaments. We're going to have some competition. The students are competitive. The coaches are competitive. And 
you know, they want to win. They want to have the opportunity to win. They want to have the opportunity to gain points eventually once these uh, events are recognized by the organizations and they can, they can, you know, win points and, you know, they can win trophies and they can bring these back to their schools. I think there, there is an added element there. And then fourth, I think, you know, we do need to get it in front of them. And that's why we're offering these tournaments at like no cost or low cost. You, you can't, you know, it's any product, right? You, you, you first kind of give it away essentially in order to get, in order to get people to use it. Right. And, you know, while no one is, is looking to make any money on this, eventually we'd like to recover our costs, but we want to make this available for just, like I said, any new thing, um, for people, for people to utilize and support. And I think once they get inside of it, they're going to have a really positive experience, right? There were a lot, there were some people, even in the spring of 2020, who didn't want their students to debate online. They said, oh, you know, this is going to be too complicated and the school's going to get concerned. We're going to have all these problems. And then the kids will never want to debate live. And of course they didn't realize how long the pandemic was going to last. They thought, you know, some people thought in April, 2020, they were going to be able to travel to nationals in June of 2020, but eventually then everyone started debating online and they learn it. We don't have a shock factor here, right? This, and, and in the spring of 2020, you can really for almost a whole other academic year, you could only debate online. So you either debated online or you didn't debate at all. We don't have that situation here. What we really have here is an opportunity uh, for coaches to learn about VR, to help their students learn how to communicate in these environments, to help them develop the skills that they're going to need in the future, to help them uh, better understand the content that they're debating about and to, to engage in some additional competitions. Uh, yeah, and for me, it's all about learn through doing. You know, I can sit you down and talk about theoretical applications all day long, but getting out and doing something is going to make something actually happen, just like in basketball. You know, I could sit you down in the classroom and go over the rules, techniques, plays, et cetera, but getting you out on the court, having you engage with people, having you do something, that's what's going to really have an impact. And, you know, for the VR application of this, it's basically to boldly go where no one has gone before. You know, not that we've ever heard that before. Uh, but would I still take in-person communication over any other form? Of course I would. But that doesn't mean I don't need to learn how to text people effectively. It doesn't mean I need to not know how to write a good email, how to have a good Zoom call. Like Zoom call etiquette during the pandemic, oh my goodness, I wish that was a course before that happened because I have seen things I cannot unsee as a teacher and everything. Uh, but virtual reality is the same front. We want to get in there. We want to learn the rules, probably even invent some of those rules because the world is changing and all of these forms of communication are going to be vital long-term. You know, so, you know, I would just add that the people, you know, I sent out a forum to get people interested in the, you know, the, that the March 5th tournament and, and, you know, what we were doing and mo most of them didn't have very much experience, but a number of them said, I want to do this because I want to learn how to do this. And so I can teach this to my students and work with my students. And I think that, you know, as we've just been describing, that that really, at least for this first tournament, the first tournament, the second tournament, that's the core motivation. You have to want to learn just like you want your kids to learn and go to their first tournament and take that risk and put themselves out there, win or lose at that first tournament. You have to adopt the same attitude you, you ask your students to adopt when they go to their first debate tournament. Another big question people are probably asking in their minds when they're listening to this and sort of thinking of, the, the efficacy of all this. You know, when we plan a speech and debate tournament, there are several logistics, like you got to make a tournament draw, you know, who's going to judge. But when we're planning, you know, this new frontier, if you will, a VR speech and debate tournament, what are some different things that we need to consider? Um, for me, I, this actually has been uh, taken up the last two days of my life quite a bit. So in terms of things, uh, I, I think Stefan and I are pretty much in agreement on most of the things. Everything that we would do for a tournament already, we're already doing. Uh, and Stefan and I have both done more than enough of those to know like, okay, we got to set a schedule. We got to get judges. We got to make sure we have tab staff who know what they're doing uh, behind the scenes. We have to have students who are going to actually compete because you can't have a tournament without competitors. Uh, so, I mean, all of those things are the same. Uh, the biggest difference here is just, uh, and I think I don't mean to put words into Stefan's mouth here, but we're both learning what the platform limitations are, as well as what the expectations are for that platform. And so utilizing the Engage platform via Victory XR, a company that does a whole lot of work in the education uh, virtual reality space, um, I'm trying to figure out exactly what do we need to do in order for these people to go to this virtual room? How many people can we have in a virtual room at a time? How do we utilize these objects that we know exist, but how do we even implement them and utilize them? And so there are some learning curve things for us on that front, because we're also not only looking from 
a we're the people running the show kind of aspect, we also have to convey that to the coaches and the student competitors because they're the ones who actually have to utilize these things. And we want to make sure it's as user-friendly as possible. And so we're planning like training days in terms of utilizing the actual space that we're going to be using in, in VR. And those kind of things are a little bit more difficult because, you know, if I do an in-person tournament, I have access to Bettendorf High School. I mean, yes, I have to fill out a form. Yes, it has to be approved by the administration. The custodians have to know. But those are still the same steps I'm doing, just in a different space. Uh, and it's a little bit different. And it is a learning curve, especially as I'm going through all of the lovely technical fun that uh, different platforms have, but we are making it work. Yeah, I would say that, you know, there's kind of basically two different parts, right? There's what you talked about initially, Craig, like the scheduling, the draw, those types of things. We're going to use tavern.com, which is used for almost every tournament. And before the pandemic, it was used for that too. It's just, you know, you would go to classroom building A, you would be told to go to classroom building A in room 215. Well, once we, when we first did the first online tournaments, that was through a Zoom embed. And there was, a, there was basically a list, you could think of it like a Google Doc, that just had a series of rooms, all right? We, we tried to duplicate the structure. As most of people familiar with it, we made one room 215, 216, 217. The students would just click on that and go to the room, but they were going into a different type of room. They were going into a Zoom room, which a lot of them hadn't used, right? So they would, they would get tripped up on, hey, why isn't the mic working, right? Well, you got to unclick the red thing, right? Like, how do you, how do you message somebody? They didn't have familiarity with that Zoom environment. And as we look now to the, maybe the third <laughs> instantiation, right? This tournament's going to be scheduled with tavern.com software, but just like they didn't have familiarity with the Zoom room, they're not going to have familiarity with this platform. And there are some different virtual platforms. We're going to be using the Engage platform. And essentially, I guess you could describe it as the Victory XR, right? Classroom space within that Engage classroom. So their kind of version of Zoom, right? And the students and the coaches are going to need to learn how to get in there. They're going to get directed from the same tavern software, but they're going to have to learn how to get in there. And as Joe just described in a lot of detail, use that space. You know, these are all amazing challenges. And so people, I don't think, realize all the little minutiae and details. You know, besides that, are there other challenges as you sort of comb through all the little details that you think about when you set up, you know, essentially you know, a new technology tournament. And so, you know, maybe I'll start with you, Stefan, like besides the familiarity of the technology, what are some other challenges that anyone would have to think about when setting something like this up? So, you know, I think you can, you know, like you said, the, the first one is familiarity. And the second one is kind of a, a old school, like equal access, right? We want to make sure that as many people have access to this technology in, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way, right? So, not, you know, now you, you can use Engage, right, through a laptop, right? But it's not as immersive as if you use with a headset. So maybe we'll have some events where you can access it, you know, through the through the laptop. And that that's one way to be immersed and then a different type of immersion through the headset. But we want to kind of eventually, you know, we're not in, we can't provide headsets to everybody, but we want to have some, um, some of that there. And then also just, you know, equity, helping kind of each, Right, which is a little different, right? As we've all learned from equality, right? Giving everybody the, the kind of boost they need as much as possible to get to a somewhat similar place. So some students may need more time. You know, some students maybe they attend a school where they already have access to this technology. They've played around with it. Same with the coaches. Others have not. So we want to kind of take the time and, and the resources to invest uh, to build them up there. And that's one of the things I love coaching about at Lakeland is they always kind of make sure the students have um, everything. Uh, for what they need. And, you know, as like I said, I also help run the New York City Urban Debate League where we work with schools that don't have a lot of resources. And I'd like to eventually make this opportunity available to them. So kind of constantly thinking about like making sure it's equal, equal you know, equitable access and then getting judges. It's never easy to find judges uh, for a debate tournament as it is, especially a large tournament. And now we want people to also be either be familiar with, and it'd be great to get some people who are already familiar with the technologies, but also using some judges who aren't quite, you know, aren't familiar with them and getting them trained on the, getting them trained on the technologies as well. But I think, you know, it's, it is core in a way, it goes back to, you know, like I said, and Joe talked about it in more detail, building the familiarity with the environment, making it comfortable. A lot of people talk about how these, you know, oh, it's expensive, you know, for the kids to have a headset. Okay, so even like a you know, unless you go really high, you know, really expensive, like you know the the the, the MetaQuest Pro or some you know the fifteen hundred dollars, three thousand 
dollar headset. So you can get a really nice headset, you know, for like between two and four hundred dollars, right? And then you know, even if you're paying for all this and you had to pay to be on the platform, right? Maybe maybe you know, for for five hundred dollars, you, you're getting everything for the whole year. If I travel into a debate tournament, one debate tournament, that's more than five hundred dollars per student with transportation you know, overnight lodging, right? Yeah. Getting judges, food, it is way more than $500. So you you can look at the absolute amount and say, well, gee, like $500 is a lot of money. When you think like, well, gee, even if I bought all, you know, if I were able to get the school to buy a a headset for all my debaters, it's a fraction of the cost of like the students in most instances attending one debate tour. Yeah. And before Joe, uh, before you chime in on that, Joe, I just want to add you know, it will, this will be a key question then that, you know, people start to ask VR debaters or VR speech and debate people, you know, at the end of their experience, you know, to what extent would they say that this higher level of embodiment and presence that VR provides would get them to do more of those and less physical debating? So that'll be key when, when you know, people go through some of these experiences in tournaments. Well, yeah, and... And to me, you know, it, this is something worth exploring. And as uh, Stefan said, in the short term, equity is definitely an issue. Accessibility is definitely an issue. Of course, I mean, in the long term, we we kind of think of this as a great equalizer, though, too. Uh, right now, we have the physical travel limitations that some programs just cannot do. Uh, there was a tournament three hours away from me, which isn't too horrible, to go to Chicago. And it just was not cost effective for me to justify taking two kids who wanted to go or some of that nature. Uh, it just wasn't cost effective enough. However, if there was an option for a VR tournament, it may make it possible that I could do that where before I would never be able to. And, you know, that's one of those accessibility concerns. Long term, VR is going to offer some different things. Uh, For instance, some kids, and I know this is not an uncommon thing for even adults, some people have great deal of anxiety level issues that say, hey, I would never speak in front of someone in a group because that freaks me the heck out, right? This offers them not potentially an alternative, but maybe a stepping stone into that world because addressing someone in virtual reality is more than they were doing before. And maybe taking that first step will help them take the second. And so we can maybe get to the point where the accessibility concerns, this is a stepping stone to get them into that greater world. Uh, there's also no physical limitations with VR, at least the same ones. I mean, in the end, we, we can find a way to have some kind of equity issue no matter what, but I think this is going to take down some barriers rather than create some. Once we get over that hump of accessibility of hardware, network connectivity, those kind of things, I think they're just different limitations. They're not going to be any new limitations. We're all going to have limitations regardless, but I do think it's another way to explore. Mm. Well said, Joe. I'm cognizant of time, so just a couple more things that I want to touch on. And One is advice. It's often neat to see uh, you know, people who are on the forefront of new technologies and so, you know, I offer you guys this opportunity for the, for those educators out there that are listening and interested and want to get into VR, either just to help their club out or maybe to get involved in these tournaments. What kind of advice would you two gentlemen give new newbies to this? I would give a few pieces of advice. The one I'd say is that your students, there are a lot of students who would like to engage in this. And I think some teachers and school administrators are going to have this gut reaction that's going on in education right now. Like, well, gee, you know, online education didn't work that well. Students didn't learn as much as they do live. They didn't like being on Zoom. They didn't like being on Google Meet. But I tell you, the reality is kids like being in in immersive, in quasi-immersive environments, right? Over the course of the pandemic, Roblox grew to 220 million users, right? You have Fortnites with similar, like hundreds of, you know, millions of, 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 of largely young people, right? Like Generation Alpha engaged in these platforms. And they're playing games, but they're not just playing your traditional games. They're building in cities. They're engaging in academic activities. They're learning a lot. They may not like Google Meet or Zoom, but they want to be in an immersive environment. And if, and if speech and debate could capture 1% of the 220 million Roblox users, we grew, we grow speech and debate by 2 million users, which I'll tell you would be a I think Joe would agree, a a very high percentage increase uh, in the number of speech and debates. I think the second thing is take a plunge. You know, I I alluded to this earlier. We 
you're always kids before they go to the first tournament they're always super nervous and you just say oh try it doesn't matter if you win or lose you'll you'll find out if you like the event you, you'll get excited you'll make some friends right you'll learn some new things tell that to yourself i think once you tell that to yourself then i think you're going to be engaged and willing to do that and third i you know i'll, I'll speak you know I'll, I'll take a risk and speak for joe here a little bit we'd love to help you right you know if you whatever we have right like our knowledge right, of, of the platform, which we're developing a virtual, if you're an existing speech and debate coach, all right, and you don't have familiarity in this environment, you know, we're happy to teach you and show you what we know. And as Joe mentioned, you have the opportunity to use the platform. If you're listening to this podcast and you, you have students, you're an educator, and you work with students who like already understand like how to use this technology and, you know, the, the Engage platform or another platform that's similar, a lot of these are somewhat similar, right, to learn how to use this platform. And your students just need to learn a little bit about speech and debate, especially on the speech side, so they can show up and they can participate in this event. That's something Joe and I can help you with uh, pretty easily. And we'd love to have you because in a way, like we're merged, we would be merging both worlds, right? We have some students coming in with speech and debate backgrounds who don't have virtual reality backgrounds, learning that. Then we'd be bringing in some students who have this background in virtual reality. You know, it's amazing to see, you I mean, saw a school that's like an entirely immersive school. Right. They just have a immersive online education opportunity to bring some of those kids in and let them learn some basic public speaking at the very least and have them participate in the competition to have all these coaches and students meet each other to blend the worlds. And and to me, the simple advice is uh, anybody starting out for the first time in anything, just remember stuff happens. It will not be perfect. You will not be perfect. This is true in-person teaching wise or coaching. This is true video conferencing teaching. Oh my goodness, that was a that was fun. Uh, versus coaching, and it'll be true in VR. It's a learning opportunity. Keep that in mind. Keep that as the emphasis, and just keep swimming, and it'll be okay. Amazing guys. Uh, again, last thing. Then, is there anything? I'll, I'll put it more open ended. Is there anything else maybe that we didn't cover that you think should be said or needs to be said to our audience uh, as we wrap this up? Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just loving the potential of the future. Uh, the thing that's just on the cusp that I, I really think, and I think this is what John Carmack, he was a huge believer in VR for the longest time and, and the, the spearhead for things, is that he wanted this to be able to be affordable for the masses, for everyone to have a, a have an equal playing field on that. And I just love the stuff that's just right on the horizon. Uh, like right now, um, VR is, you know, your face and like your hands with those, with the with the buttons and the joysticks and those kind of things. Uh, but we're getting to the point where it's just on the on the cusp, and Gizmodo has an article on Sony's Makobi, I believe it's called, and it's full-body VR motion trackers. And so we're taking what Hollywood has been able to do for quite some time with, like, I, I always see it in the movies where they put the white uh, little dots on people, and, you know, they can make uh, Mark Ruffalo, you know, into the Hulk and those kind of things via CGI and, and technology. But we're getting to the point where they those are getting to be affordable enough that people could be doing their own full body tracking. And I, I just can't wait for the day where, uh, you know, right now, video games and all those kind of things are, are the thing that most of us think about. But can you imagine a world where now I'm fully immersed and every time I move any part of my body because of these sensors, because of the way they're displayed, it'll be a full body integration. And that's just crazy to me to think that we're just on the cusp of a whole lot of cool things. Uh, and there's another thing out there called Matterport, which is a camera that basically... You can put it, it's a relatively inexpensive camera for this kind of technology, put it in a room, spin it around, it makes its own 3D mapping space of your environment. And if you can just take that tech, put it into VR, now I can be anywhere I want at any time. I can make my own house in minutes. That That's just crazy to me. But it's also crazy to think that, you know, back in my day when I walked uphill both ways, you know, like my, my first computer didn't have a hard drive, right? Like I was booting off of a floppy disk. I couldn't even imagine a terabyte of data in my life. And now terabyte is nothing. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, uh, similarly, you know, I'd say I, I listened to a podcast, you know, w w with Steve, you know, that uh, Steve was on that interviewed like nine people or, you know, really kind of leaders in the, in the VR space. And it basically asked them what inning of baseball they thought we were in, in, in VR. And the, the most aggressive answer was the third inning. <laughs> most people were in the first or the second inning. So it's an opportunity to get in at kind of kind of the, the very beginnings and and really not just see how this develops, but become an active participant and how debate, right? You you as a coach, when you if you get involved in this early stage, you're gonna be one of the active participants that is shaping like how speech and debate develops in this space because it's inevitably going to, right? Schools, it's inevitably 
uh, you know, as we discussed. And second, and I can't really put any details of this in my mind, but, you know, I was, I was running a summer camp uh, this last July. And there was a student, you know, as always, you know, playing a video game and, you know, said it instead of paying attention. So, you know, I had to tell him to, you know, hey, pay attention, stop playing that, that video game. But then I said, hey, you know, wouldn't it be great if debate was a video game? And he said, you know, if debate was a video game, a billion kids would play it. So I'm not really sure how debate would have to change or what modifications we would make or how this would uh, operate in a virtual space. It, it's no more than an idea. But if we can turn this idea of competitive speaking and competitive arguing, right, it, into a into a video game, right? It, debate is already a game. It's, it's an academic game. It's an academic competition, right, as, as we articulated at the beginning of this podcast. Then I think we could have a a billion debaters. And I, I think I'll, I'll speak for Joe and I here. We would both be very happy if we had a billion debaters. <laughs> Amazing. Gentlemen, I'm again aware of time here. So if people are interested, which I hope they are from this podcast, uh, to get a hold of you to either maybe sign up for one of the tournaments that you listed or even, you know, take your, uh, your, your call to ask you guys more questions or help in regards to either scaling up their lack of knowledge in VR or the other way, which you mentioned, which is scaling up their lack of knowledge in speech and or debate. How do they get a hold of you guys? Uh, yeah, for me, it's uh, the best way is email. I know that's pretty antiquated for the teens that I teach in the classroom. They expect me to give some TikTok video link or something. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but in, for me, it's uh, jrankin at bettendorf.k12.ia.us. And you can just search Bettendorf High School. Um, and I'm on, on the faculty page there. That's my uh, email address. But email is the best way. Uh, I, I do tend to, uh, you know, communicate with that very frequently and very thoroughly as best as I can to help out. And yeah, anything you have questions wise, please feel free to ask. Uh, open book. Yeah, now for me, the, the easiest email is just info, I-N-F-O, at debate us, D-E-B-A-T-E-U-S dot org. Uh, or as I think uh, Craig uh, kind of uh, linked in my, my LinkedIn uh, when sharing the podcast yesterday, you can feel free to, uh, you know, direct message me or connect with me on uh, LinkedIn, um, which is how I actually got to know some of the people who are probably listening uh, to the podcast, including Craig. So please, uh, please feel free to reach out through LinkedIn as well. Wonderful. What a great episode, guys. I know a lot of pressure comes with being speech and debate coaches to be articulate and insightful. And you guys definitely have lived up to that challenge today. So I really appreciate you giving us your insights. And uh, I look forward to and hope to help you guys out for the upcoming tournaments. All right. Thanks for having us. Thank you.